Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I'm the host of the show, but every now and then I invite on someone to be my temporary guest co-host. And this week I invited Greg Knuckles. He graciously accepted. So uh, I'd like to welcome Greg to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. It is absolutely an honor. Uh, How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, um, but I want to dive right into the show. We got called out on the internet, and uh, as much as I love to be defensive, uh, the person calling us out had a point. We made a very explicit commitment to shorter episodes, and last week we ended up at like an hour 30, uh, just steadily creeping back to like two, two and a half hours. So we are going to do this one in about an hour. That is my commitment. But Before we get into the content, um, if you like the show and you feel inclined to support it, uh, there are many ways to do it. You could like, rate, and subscribe wherever you happen to get podcasts. You could go to BulkSupplements.com and you could use our discount code, SBSPOD, S-B-S-P-O-D. That'll get you a 5% discount off of your entire order at BulkSupplements.com. You could subscribe to the Mass Research Review. That's a monthly research review. Greg and I are both co-authors, and we review the newest uh, scientific papers that come out related to exercise and nutrition, and we do it in a very practical way that tells you not just what the studies mean, but how to use them and how to apply them in your training or the training of your clients. And finally, you could support the show by subscribing to Macro Factor. That's the diet app that Greg and I uh, co-developed along with a very talented team of developers. Uh, And we do have a free trial, so you can try out the app, see if you love it. We think you might. Uh, And if you like it, you can keep using it and stay subscribed. So uh, moving on here, I'm going to start us off with a research review segment about fish oil, which is a fan favorite topic. Fish oil always gets attention, uh, whether you're talking about fitness and performance and body composition or just talking about health in general. Um, You can find a lot of articles about fish oil. Some make uh, more exciting claims than others. (laughs) And uh, so when when it comes to this segment, I wanna talk about fish oil specifically for recovery and body composition purposes. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about uh, the relationship between fish oil and general health. That has been done, like I said, many, many, many times. in some particular, for some particular outcomes, uh, the utility seems clear. For other outcomes, it's not quite as clear, and people like to argue quite a bit. But in general, there are a lot of studies looking at fish oil for a variety of different health and wellness-related outcomes. And when I say fish oil, just for context, uh, I'm just talking about combined EPA and DHA supplementation or supplementation with one or the other. Uh, so I could very, I could just as well be talking about algae oil rather than fish oil or specifically an EPA or a DHA supplement. So EPA and DHA are these two fatty acids that um, are, are present in high quantities in fish oil, and they really are the active ingredients, so to speak, in fish oil. So EPA and DHA, um, there are some difference between differences between them. If you are focused on more health-related outcomes, 
right now the evidence seems to indicate that EPA is probably more more helpful when it comes to cardiovascular risk reduction. DHA probably more applicable when it comes to brain-related outcomes. But there is definitely some overlap, and there are areas in which the two of them do have some complementary effects. But I want to focus on recovery and body composition. And what you might be wondering, why even bother? Like, why would you look into the effects of fish oil on body composition and recovery? When it comes to recovery, there is mechanistic evidence suggesting that EPA and DHA both have anti-inflammatory effects. So the idea is perhaps they might reduce some of the inflammatory responses to arduous training. Maybe they enhance recovery to some extent. Um, there's also, uh, you know, there's some mechanistic evidence suggesting that uh, enrichment of EPA and DHA uh, within muscle tissue itself could enhance rates of muscle protein synthesis um, and decrease the expression of factors that regulate muscle protein breakdown. So uh, perhaps there's some inflammation stuff that might help out with recovery. Perhaps by consuming EPA and DHA, we'll incorporate that into our muscle tissue, and maybe that'll alter anabolic and catabolic processes and promote uh, the accretion of new muscle proteins. Uh, and there's also some mechanistic evidence suggesting that perhaps fish oil um, could potentially alter fat oxidation and energy expenditure, so maybe it could help when it comes to burning some fat mass and losing fat mass over time. So there are some mechanistic links here, but as we know, we've seen this with just about every supplement that's ever gotten popular, um, even the ones that don't pan out, we'll see some kind of plausible mechanism and say, oh, well, let's figure out if it actually works in the real world in applied studies that replicate how we actually would want to use them. Um, so if you are a subscriber to Mass, you might recall, I actually reviewed a study by Van Dusseldorp and colleagues. Um, and what they found was that after seven and a half weeks of supplementing with either two, four, or six grams per day of fish oil, um, what, what they found was the group consuming six grams of fish oil per day generally had more favorable recovery outcomes than the other groups when it comes to vertical jump soreness and blood biomarkers of muscle damage. And I believe what they did was they looked at all these performance indices after a pretty tough squat workout, um, yep. if memory serves. Um, and so at face value, you'd say, okay, compared to placebo, two grams or four grams a day, it looks like this six grams per day of fish oil is kind of the right dose. Like you, you talked about in a recent episode, for a lot of supplements, we don't have good dose response uh, relationships figured out. We haven't really done these types of studies. Uh, so at the surface level, you'd say, great. So fish oil helps with recovery, but it's got to be, you know, up in that over four gram a day dosing range. However, it's not fair to suggest that there was like this perfect linear dose response relationship because uh, the, the differences between zero, two, and four grams a day were not very clear and not very consistent. It's not like two grams had a small effect and four had a moderate effect and then six grams had a large effect. It wasn't like that. And when you compare to other literature in the area, 
uh, this kind of potential threshold of dosing, like that could be a dose response effect. If you say there's basically no effect and then some kind of threshold that's six and above. And, you know, that's it's not a linear dose response pattern, but it's still, you know, the dose influences the magnitude of the response. Yeah. Um, but when you compare to other studies, that kind of threshold of over four grams doesn't really seem to pan out. The findings in this area were generally pretty mixed. And the dosage did not seem to be the thing that was really predicting which studies fish oil was helpful for recovery and which studies it was not. Uh, now, there was a newer study by Visconti and colleagues in 2021, and they very directly were, were kind of replicating certain aspects of this Van Dusseldorp study. It wasn't a perfect, like, identical replication attempt but what they did was they brought in young resistance trained males um, and they had them take one of three doses zero grams per day six grams per day or eight grams per day so it's kind of saying okay let's take this idea that six grams is kind of the the minimum to get a significant effect let's look a little higher as well but also include a zero gram per day placebo group um and so what they found, they, they used a very similar um, protocol where, where they did a very arduous squat uh, workout with some split, uh, some, uh, split jump squats included as well, just trying to get some muscle damage going, basically. Yeah. And then they looked at uh, recovery in terms of vertical jump height, soreness, hip and knee range of motion, creatine kinase levels, uh, and also squat reps to failure. Uh, so the design was extremely similar to the one by Van Dusseldorp and colleagues, and that was a very intentional decision, but the results were quite different. Um, so the, the, the exercise bout did uh, lead to changes in these outcomes, which was to be expected. It was supposed to induce soreness and give them some kind of burden to recover from. Uh, but neither six nor eight grams per day of fish oil significantly impacted any of these recovery outcomes. So I was a bit stumped by this and trying to make sense of this data where you find sometimes these lower doses are working, sometimes the higher doses are working. There wasn't really a clear pattern. And so I looked into uh, a systematic review by Anthony and colleagues and it was really funny because the author state the initial purpose of this review was to investigate the role of, you know, long chain omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, so basically fish oil, on eccentric exercise induced uh, uh, soreness and inflammation. So uh, they were talking about EPA and DHA pretty much. But the key word there is initial um, because basically what happened was they started getting acquainted with the literature that was available. And then the systematic review took a, a pretty hard pivot. And they're like, you know what, we're going to kind of abandon that initial purpose and now just kind of talk about all the reasons that this research is inconsistent and has a ton of shortcomings. Like it was very difficult for them to get to a point where they could really make the conclusions they wanted to make. Uh, and basically they're just saying, here are all the reasons why we can't make the conclusions we were hoping to. Um, so when you look at this body of literature, uh, you know, risk of bias tends to be pretty high. Some of the study quality um, individually, some of these studies are relatively low quality using various scoring systems. Um, there's a lot of variability in the exercise protocols that are being used to uh, induce muscle damage. Um, 
A lot of the studies fail to exclude participants who are consuming a lot of fish and a lot of EPA and DHA. Uh, they fail to exclude participants based on high tissue concentrations of EPA and DHA. Um, so it, generally speaking, in these studies, it's hard to tell whether or not the supplementation protocol is actually taking people from a position or from a status of low tissue EPA and DHA to high tissue EPA and DHA. Uh, there's just a lot of variability, and it's really hard to sort through this literature. So um, I would say, you know, if you look at the metas uh, here, it's generally speaking, it looks like fish oil has the potential to help out with uh, recovery and soreness and things like that in the short term. Um, but I, a lot of times I'm seeing people make claims about body composition related to fish oil. Um, you know, it's it's far from a, a clear outcome, even with the recovery stuff. Like I said, it's very hit or miss, but you can find a meta-analysis. Um, I forget the name of the author, but I will link it in the show notes where they, they, they did a systematic review with meta-analysis, and they did find that these omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids like EPA and, and uh, DHA, they did improve uh, recovery in terms of delayed onset muscle soreness and muscle function. Um, so there is evidence to suggest an acute benefit for recovery. Um, but like I said, I've, I've seen some people suggesting that we should not just be using fish oil for recovery, which is kind of hit or miss, but also that there might be benefits for hypertrophy or fat loss. Uh, I'm going to link these meta-analyses in the show notes, but one meta-analysis looked at uh, the effects of fish oil on hypertrophy in people who are not doing exercise training. So untrained folks giving them fish oil. And what they found was five out of the six studies that measured changes in muscle volume and muscle mass did show more favorable changes with uh, with fish oil. So that's a really positive thing and, and did get some people excited. But the same exact group did another systematic review where they looked at, um, and actually, I, I don't know if they did a meta-analysis in that first one. I, I, I think I might have called it a meta. I think they might have just done a systematic review, but I'd have to double check. I, I think you're right. Yeah, but yeah. they did another systematic review where they said, what about when you throw exercise into the mix? So is there kind of a, either an additive or a synergistic effect where we're still seeing that omega-3 fatty acids, in this case fish oil, are actually promoting more hypertrophy or improvements in muscle strength or anything of that nature uh, when combined with exercise training. And so unfortunately, what these two systematic reviews showed was that without training present, uh, omega-3 fatty acids did have some of these positive effects on muscle protein uh, processes, you know, anabolic and catabolic processes. However, when training is involved, uh, they did not notice improvements in hypertrophy, muscle strength, or skeletal muscle biomarkers of inflammation and muscle damage. They basically only found positive effects for recovery in terms of soreness and, you know, little muscle function measurements like range of motion, uh, muscle quality via ultras ultrasound and things like that. And then finally, there was a meta-analysis looking at the effects of fish oil on weight loss. And fish oil in that meta-analysis did not have a significant effect 
on reducing body weight or BMI. Um, it, it was uh, fairly underwhelming looking at the results. So they concluded that current evidence cannot support an anti-obesity role of omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, basically, it just wasn't wasn't doing much in terms of fat loss. So mm-hmm. when it comes to fish oil, um, I still think it's not a terrible idea to have some EPA and DHA coming into your diet uh, for a variety of reasons unrelated to building muscle, getting stronger, losing fat. I think uh, when you look at the various roles of EPA and DHA in physiology, it's hard to view more EPA and DHA in your system as a particularly negative thing within within reasonable boundaries. So uh, generally speaking, you'll see a lot of review papers focused on general health and wellness that say, hey, try to get like 0.3 to 0.5 grams a day of combined EPA and DHA. And that could come from fish oil. It could come from algae oil, you know, whatever you prefer. Um, it's still unclear from my perspective if higher doses will lead to any tangible benefits that relate to lifting, recovery, hypertrophy, fat loss, anything of that nature. But I still think it's a good idea to seek out some EPA and DHA in your diet for completely unrelated reasons. So I'd say 0.3 to 0.5 grams per day on average doesn't doesn't mean you have to get that every day. But over the course of a week, you know, if you're averaging that intake per day, that's probably a good place to be. If you want to go a little bit higher, I think it's uh, pretty reasonable to go up to like one, maybe even up to two grams a day. Two, two, I think is kind of the highest end for me where I'd say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there are some select instances where you might want to go higher, but I haven't really seen strong enough evidence to convince me that more than one or two grams a day of combined EPA and DHA would really be uh, an important thing to do or a, a tangibly beneficial thing to do. And the caveat that I always like to point out here, uh, if you are taking relatively high doses of EPA and DHA, it can increase bleeding time. So, so like if you were to, you know, have a wound, uh, that bleeding might not stop quite as quickly if you were taking high doses of fish oil. So like, for instance, if you were going in for a surgery or something like that, you would absolutely want to make sure that your medical team knows that you've been taking EPA and DHA. So all of that is to say EPA and DHA are still very interesting um, uh, components of the diet. I still think you want to seek, seek them out, but I don't think you want to seek them out as a potent anabolic um, dietary ingredient. More research, I'm sure, will be done that will clarify some of these unresolved questions about promoting hypertrophy and uh, promoting acute recovery. But for now, there's just not as much uh, exciting evidence as, as you'd like to believe, unfortunately. Yeah, so that, that's one perspective. Um, I'm I just wondering, in your literature search, did you come across a, uh, I assume this is a systematic review, uh, published on the biotest website about <laughs> about fish oil dude they they keep publishing these systematic reviews that <laughs> that you find and for some reason my pubmed search is not catching yeah I, I, so i think you need to look at a variety of databases don't just be a normie who stops at pubmed and google scholar uh, there's a great research database on t nation uh which you can mostly find on their sales pages uh so let's let's just um present an alternate case for uh, omega-3s, EPA, and DHA. Uh, So they're saying that, in fact, 
Uh, fish oil does boost metabolic rate and burn more fat. Um, okay. So I think you may have been a little bit off base there. Uh, increases insulin sensitivity, supports lean mass and muscle gains, uh, switches the body to prefer fat burning over glycogen, and uh, boosts cellular, parentheses, mitochondrial energy consumption. So seems like there's a lot of good stuff going on. You're saying uh, 0.3 to 0.5 grams of of combined EPA and DHA per day. They're saying a little bit over 3 grams. Um, so, you know, those dosing recommendations from your source of science, uh, which I assume has a ton of conflicts of interest, are a little bit lower than this source of science that I, as far as I can tell, is uh, completely devoid of conflicts of interest. Um and yeah, so I just learned omega-3 fatty acids increase the heat of your cellular furnaces, known as mitochondria and peroxisomes. That and, and here's some innovation right here. They're referring to them as furnaces instead of the powerhouse of the cell. Uh, so that's, I think, a, a new shift in terminology. Um, so yeah, anyway, I would say that we're a pretty open-minded podcast. And in this, like all things, I believe we should teach the controversy. Um yeah, just just wanted to make sure that your uh, uh, skeptical interpretation of this literature wasn't the only thing presented, because there there is uh, a variety of viewpoints uh, that, as with all things, all are equally valid. Yeah, because I did look up the the one on fat loss was by Dew and colleagues. That was a meta analysis, and I control I did control F. They didn't even mention furnaces in the entire paper. That's a major oversight. Yeah. Um, and by the way, just to give credit, uh, the other two that I mentioned about uh, hypertrophy and strength outcomes, those were systematic reviews with without a meta-analysis component. Both of them were written by Lopez, Sayoan, and colleagues. Uh, I'm certain I mispronounced that, but like I said, the links will be in the show notes. So, Greg, do you want to do a research review? You want to do Q&A? What are you thinking? Yeah, so my my research review, uh, more than anything, is just a brief research shout-out. Also, just just a note, to be clear, for our listeners who don't get sarcasm, uh, I'm not recommending biotest sales pages as a valid form of, uh, a, a valid place for research interpretation, just to be clear. Interesting. Uh, so anyway... Um, yeah, so I, I want to give a bit of a shout-out, without going into too much depth, uh, about a recent systematic review that was published looking at the research on sports psychology. So uh, sports psych is a field that I think most coaches should at least be aware of and keep up to some degree. I will admit that it's not an area where I tend to go super, super in-depth. Um, but it is, and part of that just relates to the fact that there's been so much research and I feel like I would need to <laughs> do a tremendous amount of reading to kind of get caught up on, on where the current state of the, of the literature is. And there's just so much stuff being published. You, you kind of have to pick your spots and kind of know, um, just how many different bodies of literature you as an individual can reasonably keep up with. And for me, sports psych something I think is cool, but not something that I want to invest the time into being like super, super caught up on. Um, so that's part of the reason that I'm not going to go super in depth here, but 
Uh, as I mentioned, a systematic review was published that I think is worth mentioning because if you, dear listener, are very interested in sports psychology, this is a tremendous resource for um, exploring and discovering more of the literature and just kind of a, a jumping off point for your own reading and learning. So the title of this systematic review was Sports Psychology and Performance Meta-Analyses, colon, a systematic review of the literature by Lockbaum and colleagues, uh, published in PLOS. Uh, and so it's exactly what it sounds like. They It was a systematic review of meta-analyses. So not a systematic review and meta-analysis, a systematic review of meta-analyses. But basically they had a set of, of predetermined search criteria defined all of the meta-analyses in sports psychology, uh, investigating the either relationship between various psychological variables and uh, sport or exercise performance, or the impact of various sports psychology interventions on, uh, on performance. And so basically what they found is that overall, the field of sports psychology seems to be on pretty strong evidentiary grounds. So they identified 30 various meta-analyses in sports psychology and the psychological characteristics or interventions that were uh, that have been theorized to either improve performance or be associated with higher performance do in fact tend to be. Um, when you kind of pool all of those things that are supposed to have positive effects together, all of the effect estimates from all of the various meta-analyses you do see a mean positive effect, a devalue of about 0.5, which is typically interpreted as a medium-sized positive effect. And all of the things that are that have been theorized to uh, either be correlated with negative performance or to cause negative performance, uh, the mean effect for those things is a small negative effect, a D of negative 0.21. So overall, Seems like the field basically knows what it's doing, basically knows what it's talking about. The things that are supposed to work seem to work. The things that are supposed to have negative effects do seem to have negative effects. Um, so overall, that's very positive. Uh, it's worth noting that, uh, so if you pull up this study, which uh, everyone should be able to do, PLOS is an open access journal, so everyone can access this. Uh, if you pull up the study and look at figure two, it just plots all of the effect estimates from all of these systematic or all of these meta-analyses um, and, and just pulling a couple out. The largest positive effect was for mindfulness interventions, which surprised me a little bit, honestly. And the largest negative effect was for total mood disturbances. So that's coming from the profile of mood states questionnaire. Basically, if someone says, uh, I'm angry, I'm confused, I have low vigor, blah, blah, blah. Just like all of these various things, basically saying like, yeah, my vibes are very bad, tends to be associated with poor performance. Uh, one thing I'll note is when you pull up this study and check it out, I wouldn't necessarily interpret all of the effect estimates in that figure two as directly applicable apples to apples comparisons, just because all of these various meta-analyses included in this systematic review included different studies with different research techniques, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, it, it will give you kind of a rough idea of what sorts of characteristics or interventions seem to be 
uh, more beneficial and which ones seem to have a larger deleterious effect on performance um, to just kind of get your feet under you. Uh, and also, um, it's worth noting, and, and I think a lot of the value of this systematic review comes from the authors identifying weaknesses both in the meta-analyses that current, currently exist in sports psychology and also within the underlying literature that uh, kind of go, that went into those meta-analyses. So they, they identified uh, quite a few current weaknesses in the literature, but a few of the more notable ones were a lot of the meta-analyses were meta-analyses of cross-sectional studies, which can't necessarily be used to imply causation. Um, so I, I think 30 meta-analyses went into this systematic review, and 18 of the 30 were just looking at cross-sectional uh, research. Um, of the studies that actually used interventions, uh, a lot of them, a lot of them used control groups, which is good but they didn't use control groups that would have been adequate for controlling for expectancy effects. So basically, if you, you know, like let's say you have a, a mental imagery, um, uh, a mental imagery, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Intervention, that's the word I'm looking for. So you have a mental imagery intervention and you have two groups and one of them, you say, hey, we're going to test your performance. Then you're going to do all of this mental imagery training. Then we're going to test your performance again. And then you have a control group where you say, hey, we're going to test your performance. And then two weeks later, you're going to come into the lab and we're going to test your performance again. So, you know, on the surface, that looks like good intervention group, good control group. You're good to go. Uh, but a drawback there is basically that humans aren't stupid, like human research subjects know if they're in the control group. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you have an intervention that it, it's pretty clear to the subjects that you're expecting it to improve performance, that's going to induce some positive, some positive expectancy effects in the intervention group that wouldn't necessarily be there in the control group. And so it's difficult to know whether the intervention itself was having positive effects or if just the expectancy of a positive effect from an intervention that people think is going to work, if that's the actual thing uh, driving the positive effects. So they, they identified that as a relatively consistent weakness in a lot of the studies on the actual intervention meta-analyses. Um, and also a lot of the, uh, a lot of the interventions and a lot of the correlates that are associated with performance or uh, are supposed to improve performance, a lot of them lack clearly proposed underlying mechanisms to explain why they're effective for increasing or decreasing performance. So ultimately, if you're using kind of a, a theory-based science paradigm, like it, it's good to know that something works, but it's also good to know why it works because uh, if you have that underlying mechanism in place and you can kind of build upon that to, you know, understand a subject deeper, that one gives you an indication that the actual outcomes you're finding are legitimate because they're kind of underpinned by a well-understood mechanism. And two, it just helps you extend the research further. Like if there's a well-understood mechanism and one sort of intervention uh, based on that mechanism tends to improve performance, 
there might be other possible mechanisms based on that or uh, other possible interventions based on that same mechanism that might also improve performance, which you can then test if you do understand that mechanism. But a lot of this research isn't necessarily mechanistically based. It's it's more just like, hey, here's this thing that we think will improve performance. Let's test it. Oh, cool. It does improve performance. Let's move on. Uh, so this is a field where um, kind of a, a deeper research into underlying mechanisms might pay pretty big dividends. So th- those were some of the drawbacks that were noted uh, in this systematic review of meta-analyses. Um, and so, like I said, I mostly just wanted to very, very briefly talk about this uh, because if you are really into sports psychology or if you would like to get into sports psychology and just uh, really dive into this body of literature, this paper would be a really, really good one to start with. Oftentimes when we talk about on, uh, when we talk about on this podcast uh, how to go about not just reading and interpreting a single study, but sinking your teeth into a body of literature, one of the things we consistently recommend is trying to find a recent systematic review and meta-analysis or meta-analysis uh, dealing with the subject you're interested in learning about, both to get a broad overview of the literature as it stands today, but then two, like those review papers are going to cite all of the individual studies that are kind of underpinning their findings and analysis. And so if you really want to get into it, you know, you, you can just you, you can just mine the citations and then dig into all of the original research that underpins those review papers. So since this is functionally a review of reviews, the vast, vast majority of individual studies within sports psychology uh, are going to be cited within the systematic reviews and meta-analyses that are cited in this systematic review. So it's basically just a jumping off point that will branch you towards just about all of the sports psych literature that you could ever want to read uh, if this is a subject that you want to dive into more deeply. So uh, independent of its uh, of its kind of acute utility as a standalone paper, uh, it's also, it has a ton of utility just as a jumping off point to learn more about the field. That's awesome, man. I think uh, all of our listeners on the road to enlightenment are going to be really happy to hear that. Largest effect size coming from mindfulness interventions. Yep. Uh, no so. no need to investigate that deeper. Nope. Just take it at face value. You're good to go. Absolutely. Um, cool. So I want to move on to the Q&A segment here. And I've got one question I'm going to answer. I know you've got at least a couple you want to get to. Um. Mine, uh, I'm going to answer something briefly. Um, I absolutely could have made a very long um, segment out of this, but I'm going to paint with a broad brush. So I'm acknowledging that on the front end, I am very concisely summarizing big topics here. So if you hear the way that I discuss one of these theories and you say, Eric, you're an idiot, that doesn't capture every nuance of the theory I'm admitting to that on the front end, but I am going to provide a resource that does not paint with a broad brush. I'm going to link to a paper that gives some really exceptional um, definitions and explanations of these topics. But I had a question in the Stronger by Science Facebook group by Matthias, and he asked if I could address or summarize 
the topic of body fat set points in the next uh, Stronger by Science podcast episode. Uh, so what I'd like to do is refer readers to a paper by John Speakman and colleagues. I've mentioned his work many times before on the podcast. He's done some really excellent work in metabolism. The paper is called Set Points, Settling Points, and Some Alternative Models. And then there's a bunch of stuff after the colon. So I'll link to that paper, but the short version, the reason somebody wanted me to kind of expand upon this is someone asked in the Facebook group about body fat set points. And I mentioned that I think there are alternative models that do a better job of explaining how body weight is, uh, uh, I guess, managed over time, how body weight fluctuates within certain constraints over time. Um, and so I, I wanted to point out a few things that are covered within this paper. Um, there is first the kind of classical set point theory. And the set point theory, oversimplifying pretty aggressively here, is basically the idea that our body has a particular body fat level that it likes to defend. And so theoretically, when we get too far from that set point, there is some degree of uh, feedback within the body, some degree of signaling cascades that send the message, hey, you're getting away from where we want to be in terms of body fat. And therefore, theoretically, you know, if, if your body was wired to protect a particular point or if we're being generous, a range of body fat, then once you start getting lower than that range, uh, you know, you would theoretically either reduce energy expenditure or increase energy intake and get back into that range. There would be uh, physiological factors nudging you back up toward that range. And conversely, if you started gaining weight to the point that you were getting uh, higher than that range, theoretically, you'd have reduced appetite or, or other uh, feedback systems to kind of push you back down. So that's the idea. And they kind of lay out all the evidence for and against it, but the very simplified point that they're trying to make here is that, first of all, you know, BMI levels, obesity rates, overweight prevalence has gone up quite a bit since the 1980s, and there's no clear evidence why set points at a population level would kind of drift upward over the last 40-something years. Um, and then when we look at other correlates with weight gain or fat gain, uh, one of the things they said in the paper as a quote was, if the, if the body fat set point changes in response to our social class, marital, marital status, or whether or not we watch television, then it's not really a set point, you know? So the issue that they have with the set point theory is that it is excessively dependent on uh, biology and physiology and doesn't really leave enough room for other factors that influence body weight. So it, it doesn't acknowledge a lot of the psychological, behavioral, environmental factors. Then they talk about the settling point model, uh, which is based on the idea that there's kind of passive feedback between the size of your body and, and certain aspects of energy expenditure. But basically, in the paper, they, they have an analogy about like a reservoir of water. Um, and they actually have like a, 
a literal picture of a of a reservoir and the idea is you know energy intake goes up it's higher than energy expenditure that reservoir fills up with water or in other words we start gaining fat mass but at a certain point that reservoir basically starts to overflow um, and, and at a certain point as as body fat levels go up generally speaking we will run into some constraint at the higher end because our body gets bigger our energy expenditure goes up but what they are basically uh, showing within this kind of analogy is that we've got this kind of uh, energy intake component of water flowing into the reservoir, and we've got this energy expenditure component of water flowing out of the reservoir, uh, and the rate of outflow is linked to the overall volume of the reservoir. Uh, so there's a nice little analogy that shows how the model works, but in a way, their issue with, uh, and I think they make a very compelling uh, case here, the issue with the settling point theory is it doesn't leave enough room for some of the physiological constraints. So it's kind of an overcorrection that does a lot to explain how different environmental factors can, can um, influence the defense of certain body weight ranges and body weight changes over time. But it is a bit of an overcorrection in the sense that it fixes a lot of the problems with the set point theory, but fails to address some of the good aspects of the set point theory. So in this paper, they present two other models that, in my opinion, are uh, more compatible with both the mechanistic evidence and the population level trends that we see over time. So the first one is the general model of intake regulation. And you can open the paper to kind of see how they diagram everything. But the basic idea is that there are both compensated and uncompensated factors that influence energy intake. Um, and on the compensated side of things, there is some degree of feedback where, uh, you know, compensated factors, physiological factors related to body weight regulation are influencing intake, but intake is also having a feedback loop that influences those compensated factors. So those things are to some degree operating in a feedback loop, but the uncompensated factors we, we could talk about, um, these are kind of non-physiological things like our environment, um, you know, our, our habits related to food intake. These things do not operate in a clear feedback loop the way that, you know, we might, you know, gain some some weight and energy expenditure goes up and leptin levels goes up and appetite goes down. There are two different sides of this coin and there are compensated biological feedback loops that are keeping things within certain ranges, but those uncompensated factors can still override some of that and push us to higher body fat levels than we would otherwise be defending. Uh, in my opinion, the most interesting model, and again, I don't want to go too long with this segment, is the uh, the dual intervention point model. And it also um, acknowledges the fact that there are compensated and uncompensated or physiological and non-physiological factors that dictate body weight regulation. But it basically makes the argument that we've got an upper intervention point and a lower intervention point. And we can think of this as kind of the upper and lower body weight range that we feel really comfortable in. And our behaviors, our eating environment, psychological aspects related to food, that will kind of dictate when we're fluctuating toward the higher end of that range or the lower end. But then once we get beyond a certain point, 
some of those physiological feedback loops kick in and they really do constrain our weight change beyond a certain level. So like for me personally, I can easily bulk up to about 185. If I try to bulk up too higher than like too too much above like 195, my appetite just like shuts down. Yeah. Um, I can cut down to 160 pretty easily. Once I start getting 155, 150, my hunger's through the roof, my energy expenditure tanks. Um, so this kind of resonates with me because I know my body weight can kind of drift around between, you know, 160 and 180, something like that. I, I forget what numbers I, I threw out earlier, but that's kind of the general range where, you know, just kind of environmental changes, behavioral changes, my weight will float around in there, but it's pretty clear when you start to bump into your upper and lower intervention points and you're starting to get pretty significant feedback from your body. That's like, yeah, dude, you're heavier than you like to be. Your appetite is just cut or, you know, you start getting super low and it's like, Hey, you, you really ought to eat more like hungers through the roof, energy expenditures down. So I personally think that the dual intervention point model is a very, um, a very solid way to conceptualize body weight regulation. And I would highly encourage people to check that out for more information. But if you ever see me in a Facebook group saying, yeah, I'm not really into body fat set points as a comprehensive theory, it's because I think this dual intervention theory makes a lot more sense. Uh, Okay, so kicking to you, uh, as many questions as you'd like to answer. We're about 44 minutes into the episode, give or take. The floor is yours. Oh, yeah. Easy peasy. I've got I've got three questions, and uh, I will try to be as quick as possible. I'll admit I went longer than I planned with both of mine, so I, I can't blame you if you go a little little over. Yeah, it's fine. We'll we'll see what happens. So um, we did address uh, one of the questions from Reddit in the last episode. So I have one more Reddit question to address here from B Health Performance. What is the proposed mechanism for why working muscles at longer muscle lengths produces more hypertrophy? So this question is asking about proposed mechanisms, not necessarily trying to litigate whether longer ranges of motion or maybe long muscle length partials are better, just assuming they are, which there's quite a fair bit of evidence for. What are some potential mechanisms to uh, explain those findings? So uh, there are a few. One is uh, just straight up classic tension and mechanotransduction. So um, muscular tension is one of the initiators of uh, your your local skeletal muscular hypertrophy response. Um, and uh, the reason tension is important is it kicks off a process called mechanotransduction. Basically, you have little proteins on uh, the cell membrane of your muscles called your sarcolemma where... Uh, when when they feel tension, uh, like when there's tension between the fiber itself and the surrounding connective tissue, that puts like shearing force on those ad- adhesive adhesion proteins that are kind of hooking your muscle fibers into the connective tissue matrix. And uh, when that shearing force is put on those proteins at those adhesion points, that kicks off a big cellular signaling cascade. Uh, that ultimately results in upregulations in ribosome biogenesis and muscle protein synthesis. Um, And so the details of that relationship aren't fully worked out. So, 
you know, it's pretty clear that a little tension will give you some degree of hypertrophic response. More tension will tend to give you a greater hypertrophic response. Uh, but it's hard to know whether you hit a limit, whether it's like a threshold type system, whether it's just purely linear. We don't know for sure. Uh, but if it's not if it's not a sort of relationship where you do just hit a limit, then training at long muscle lengths may be beneficial just via increasing the total amount of tension that is on a muscle and therefore enhancing mechanotransduction because when a muscle is stretched, that puts more direct tension on the connective tissue within the muscle itself, uh, which could therefore increase the shearing forces uh, between the muscle fibers and the surrounding connective tissue matrix, therefore potentially greater mechanotransduction, greater hypertrophy signaling. So that's one uh, possibility. Another possibility is just muscle deoxygenation. So there's some research, a uh, couple papers out of Japan. The the ones coming to mind for me, uh, the researchers are Kubo and Tanimoto. Um, so they've been looking at the impact of just muscle deoxygenation on hypertrophy signaling. Um, and there's some evidence suggesting that kind of all else being equal, if you train pretty hard, you push a set pretty hard, the greater levels of muscle deoxygenation that you achieve at the end of a set um, might be predictive of the magnitude of the hypertrophic response you get. And so when a muscle is under stretch, um, that can that can cut off uh, blood flow from veins. And if you put, push a set hard enough, it can cut off some arterial blood flow as well. Um, I'm not super sold on that so so a muscle under stretch like that will or that can put more occlusive uh pressure on some of those blood vessels i'm not a hundred percent sold on this as the mechanism for long muscle length training specifically um largely just because if you push a set pretty hard um this will likely occur anyways kind of regardless of of how you're training um, and, and I think this would be more relevant to long muscle length partials uh, rather than just kind of full range of motion training versus partial range of motion training. And since full range of motion training does still seem to be better than short short muscle length partial range of motion training, um, I don't think I don't think we can chalk it all up to just muscle deoxy deoxygenation. But that that's one potential contributor. Another one is uh, local autocrine and paracrine signaling. So I, I should have pulled this paper up, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> but there, there was one paper that I believe was looking at knee extensions with full range of motion versus partial range of motion training uh, that looked specifically at the kind of local hormonal response. So not looking at, you know, you just take a venous blood draw and look at... Uh, IGF-1 and testosterone levels kind of going all through circulation, but take a muscle biopsy and see like what's actually going on within the muscle itself. Um, in terms of hormonal responses to training, it does seem like the local hormonal responses may matter a bit more than the systemic hormonal responses. And so there is one paper that uh, specifically looked at this with partial versus full range of motion training, finding that if memory serves uh, local IGF-1 levels within the quads were higher uh, following full range of motion training than partial range of motion training. Um, so that could be uh, related to just like the total tension and stretch-mediated stuff. Um, 
might be related to muscle deoxygenation. Who's to say? But uh, that could that could be one additional factor that might be contributing. Uh, and then one final possibility that I haven't seen floated all that much in the literature, but that I think might be contributing is maybe just exposing a region of a muscle to tension that is not quite as used to being put under high levels of tension. So one of the things we've talked about on the podcast before, as it relates to range of motion and hypertrophy, is that you can kind of get an inhomogeneous uh, response throughout a muscle belly uh, when it comes to hypertrophy with different training with different ranges of motion. So Basically, if you're doing short muscle length partials, so uh, for example, if you're doing half squats or something like that, you're only going down to 90 degree knee angle, coming back up uh, versus full range of motion squatting. What what you tend to see is that for proximal parts of the muscle, so if you're looking at the quads, the parts of the quads that are closer to the hip, you tend to see pretty similar hypertrophy with partial versus full range of motion training. But for the middle of the muscle belly, and especially the distal parts of the muscle belly, so in the case of squats closer to your knee, that would be the distal parts of the quads, uh, when you're training at longer muscle lengths, you tend to have much greater hypertrophy in the distal regions of the muscle uh, than you would when you're doing short muscle length partial range of motion training. Um, The one possibility there is just that the forces uh, that you're exposing the muscle to aren't uniformly distributed when you're doing stuff. And basically, the proximal parts of a muscle are uh, the regions of the muscle that are contributing more when you're kind of not going through all all that much uh, joint range of motion. And so, you know, when you're just walking around, you're not going through a ton of knee flexion. uh, And maybe just like the proximal parts of your quads are taking most of that tension, doing most of that work. And so just the distal parts of the muscles are being exposed to less stress throughout day-to-day life. But then when you do full range of motion training or long muscle length partials, uh, now you're redistributing more of the stress to those distal portions of the muscle uh, and therefore just putting more stress on them, causing a greater hypertrophy response. Um, So, you know, it it could be none of the other things I just mentioned and more just that in day-to-day life, the distal regions of muscles are generally undertrained. And by training at long muscle lengths, you expose them to tension when you otherwise wouldn't, those specifically distal regions of the muscle. And ultimately, that results in greater overall muscle growth, but really not much of a difference uh, at the proximal portions of the muscle. So uh, those those are all possibilities uh, that could explain why training at long muscle lengths tends to produce more hypertrophy. Moving on, uh, from the Facebook group, Athena Deion asks, uh, would micro-workouts be helpful for muscle building at all? For example, getting 100 reps of bicep curls a day by doing 10 sets of 10 throughout the day. Um, Yeah, I I think this is very possible. Um, So first, just kind of reasoning by analogy here, uh, if you want to see some of the best forearm development in the world outside of like professional arm wrestlers and professional bodybuilders, just look at manual laborers who are winging hammers, laying bricks, laying cinder blocks. Most of them have absurd forearm development, even if they're not doing any dedicated resistance training. 
just because they are exposing those muscles to some degree of loading, some degree of stress throughout the day. Um, so yeah, I, I think like just kind of looking around the real world, there is c some conceptual evidence for this idea. Um, and also just kind of further reasoning by analogy, but now talking about research a little bit more. Uh, we mentioned this on, on the last podcast episode. Uh, if you're very sedentary and just start exposing your lower body musculature to a tiny, tiny little bit of stress, you can get a hypertrophy response from that. So if you go from being very sedentary to just walking more uh, or doing some very light cardio, that can cause some hypertrophy just, just from doing stuff with those muscles that you often aren't using a ton throughout the day. And, you know, I could see that potentially applying to upper body muscles. Like, in general, throughout the day, you are using your lower body muscles more than your upper body muscles. Like, your biceps aren't super engaged in walking. Um, they're maintaining some level of tension just to kind of hold your shoulder in place. But, you know, they, you, you generally aren't doing that much with your biceps throughout the day, especially in relation to your lower body muscles. Are you suggesting that people start uh, bear crawling rather than walking on two legs? That is, I mean, that's one possibility. Uh, but but anyway, so, you know, I, I could see maybe just exposing your upper body muscles to more consistent, just even fairly slight challenges throughout the day maybe having some degree of positive effect for hypertrophy. Um, however, one thing I will note, just to be very clear, the research looking at training multiple times per day does not go up to doing uh, 10 sets spread into 10 small workouts throughout the day. Uh, the, the highest I've seen is three a days. Um, and that was a very, very low volume study by Xiao, I believe. Um, so yeah, like there, I, I'm not going to claim that there's direct research support for this. I'm just saying if, if someone put a gun to my head and said, Hey, do you think this could work? I'd say, yeah, yeah. Like if, if I, I think there's a better than 50% chance that it has a positive effect rather than, an, than a negative effect in terms of estimating how large that magnitude of positive effect is. I don't know who's to say, um, one piece of practical advice I would give, though, is if you want to give this a shot, one, uh, reach out. Let me know how it goes. I'm very interested. Uh, two, ease into it. Um, you know, assuming you're not uh, presently doing a level of biceps training volume that would equate to 100 reps per day. Like, you're not you're not currently doing 700 reps per day of bicep training. Um, going from basically 0 to 100 right from the jump. Uh, would be putting a lot more stress both on the muscles but also on the soft tissues than uh, your body is probably acclimated to. So that could set you up potentially for overuse injuries. So I would recommend if you want to go this route, ease into it. Um, you know, maybe just go with one set of 10 every day. If that's going fine, eh, maybe, maybe jump to three sets. Uh, and then if that's going fine, maybe jump to five sets. But just like slowly build your way up to 10 sets. Or if you want to go 10 sets from the jump, maybe leave five or six reps in reserve every set and then slowly ramp up the difficulty of those sets. But basically, don't go from not currently doing daily bicep training to doing 10 very hard sets every day. Uh, that is probably not a great idea. 
But yeah, just be smart about it, ease into it, and uh, if you give it a shot, let me know how it goes. Good stuff. We're at 59 minutes. Can you do uh, the next Q&A relatively concisely? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So uh, the last one, also from Facebook, is from Kim Josephson. Uh, Question is about junk volume and session volume. What are your thoughts on a maximum number of sets per session for a body part? You've talked about a a theoretical limit to how much useful volume could be in a session before in mass. Some of that discussion was based on the Barbalio studies that have been retracted. Lately, Jeff Nippard made a video on the same subject, generally looking at three to six sets as a theoretical cap per session. Um, I watched Jeff's video. My remembrance of it was that he said six to eight sets as a starting point per session. Uh, but but regardless, just talking about this question conceptually, um, you know, basically what is the highest per muscle amount of productive volume that you can do in a single session. I, I do think that uh, six to eight sets is probably a, a pretty good starting point. Um, so in Jeff's video, he cited an analysis from Weightology, uh, James Krieger's website and research review, which I would strongly recommend. It's very good. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that's a perfectly reasonable starting point kind of based on averages from the research as it exists today that seems to give you the vast majority of the benefits that you can uh, receive for a single muscle from a single training session and you you might get either diminishing returns or maybe even no further returns from higher per session volumes than that kind of on average couple of things I'll note, though, is one, this will likely depend on proximity to failure. So most of the research that exists just has people training to failure basically every set. And so six to eight sets to failure for a given muscle group, um, you know, the six to eight set recommendation, the unstated assumption is six to eight sets per failure to failure for a given muscle group. If you're leaving a few reps in reserve, the per session set volume recommendation would probably be a bit higher than that. It's hard to say how much higher, but, you know, I I would use that not as kind of an optimal range, but as kind of a lower end range if you're leaving more reps in reserve. Um, And also, the other thing I'll note is I think that this varies more between individuals than a lot of people assume and or realize There was a study by Scarpelli that came out in 2020. The title was Muscle Hypertrophy Response is Affected by Previous Resistance Trained Volume in Trained Individuals. So basically what they did in this study is um, they used a within-subject design and they asked people, hey, what does your training volume for quads look like right now? And what they did for one group is they assigned them a level of quad training volume that was basically in keeping with what is typically prescribed for quad training in the literature. I think it was like 20 to 22 sets per week, something like that. Um, So it was split into two sessions. So it was basically like 10, 11 sets per day. Uh, And then for the other leg, what they did is they took the subjects reported baseline training volume and then just said, okay, for each one of you, you're just going to increase your baseline training volume by 20%. So if someone was only previously doing five sets of quad training per week, they'd be doing six sets. If someone was previously doing 20 sets of quad training per week, they'd be doing 24 sets. If someone was doing 40 sets of quad training per week, 
they'd be doing 48 sets. Um, so they, they just use the subject's baseline as what they built on. Um, and what they found is that on average, the individualized approach, so increasing 20% over baseline, uh, on average produced statistically significantly more quad hypertrophy than the one size fits all 22 sets per week or 11 sets per session approach. Uh, and also when you dig into this paper, and look at the individual results, there were a lot of subjects who were doing quite a bit more than eight, than six to eight sets per session, um, who were doing like way, way more than what would be assumed to be like optimal based on uh, kind of population level data or, or just like the, the, group level results from studies that exist. So basically the implication is there were quite a few people in this study who were growing more on way more than uh, 22 sets per week than they were on 22 sets per week, suggesting that for those individuals, the optimal per session volume was quite a bit higher than six to eight sets per session. Um, All of which is to say, you know, any sort of general recommendations like this, you need to you need to contextualize them. Uh, if you're training to failure or very close to failure, six to eight sets per muscle group per week, uh, or, or uh, six to eight sets per muscle group per session, probably a pretty decent starting point. Uh, but you need to keep the details of the sets in mind. So if you're training quite a bit further from failure, it's probably going to be higher on average. And then second, remember all of these recommendations are just averages to start at, to start your troubleshooting. For you, uh, the the per session optimal volume per muscle group might be quite a bit lower than that, or it might be considerably higher than that. So you, you look at averages to kind of start the troubleshooting process, uh, but don't, don't, don't be disturbed if your own experimentation leads you to something that is uh kind of kind of far from the average because there there is a lot of variability in terms of volume tolerance between individuals all right good stuff uh we're at an hour and five minutes i'm very proud of us for for getting through the episode and hell yeah staying close to the hour mark so to play us out um in our last episode we kind of vaguely mentioned that one of the big things in the online nutrition space these days is a lot of um a lot of bad press related to seed oils Uh, a lot of people suggesting that they are are quite deleterious and quite unhealthy in the human diet we mentioned that we weren't really tapped into that uh, conversation too much. Like we, we kind of speculated what that might be about, what the basis for those concerns might be. Uh, a, a couple of listeners sent me some articles about uh, what's going on in the world where people are really concerned about seed oils. And it was pretty much what we were kind of assuming. Uh, a lot of the A lot of the stuff came from... Um, websites that trended in the paleo to keto to carnivore kind of theme. And so a lot of the general concerns were, you know, these seed oils have a lot of uh, unsaturated bonds in the fatty acid chain, and those are prone to oxidation. And so theoretically, 
you consume a lot of these seed oils, there's going to be all of this oxidation going on of these unsaturated uh, fatty acid bonds, and that's going to have implications for overall inflammation and for the development of atherosclerotic plaques and things like that. So that was kind of one genre of concern. Another genre was just that seed oils have gone up over the last X number of decades, and they correlate with a lot of bad things in terms of health outcomes, but anything that changed over the last 80 years is going to positively or negatively correlate with bad stuff just based on which direction it, it went. You know, I mean, like, generally speaking, health outcomes uh, for a number of cardiometabolic diseases have gotten worse, um, you know, if you go back the last 100 years or so, not in a perfectly linear relationship or anything like that, but you, you see these arguments all the time where people take a snapshot of the time frame where heart disease went up and they say, well, the thing I don't like also went up during that time frame. Seems yeah. bad. So that was another genre. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, I looked into some of them. It, it's a lot of concern, but not a lot of uh, actual evidence of human beings eating an otherwise healthy diet that incorporates seed oils and then experiencing any clear deleterious outcomes. And so I, I personally, I mean, anyone listening to the show has probably picked up on this. Anyone who follows our written work, I don't get a big buzz out of debunking stuff and, and like getting really deep. Like once I assess the argument and say, okay, there's really not much here. I'm comfortable just kind of leaving it at that saying, ah, here's kind of, uh, some better evidence to go with. I don't lose sleep about people being wrong on the internet. Uh, I can just move past it. But uh, I do understand that, you know, there's a lot of people making convincing arguments about why you should be worried about seed oils. And I do want to at least put a helpful resource out there. So if you're listening, if you check the show notes, I'm going to link to uh, an article from the Nutrivore.com. It is uh, kind of a rebuttal to a lot of the uh, common concerns about seed oils. It's long. Uh, it estimates that it's a 66-minute read, and it's got like 200 references. But it goes through, in a very comprehensive way, most of the scary claims about seed oils and then presents some pretty strong evidence to uh, alleviate those concerns pretty much across the board. So um, I don't want to... Um, discount the fact that like absolutely there are people on the internet making arguments against seed oils that do seem on the surface to be pretty compelling uh, but if you dig into the research uh, a lot of those arguments get less and less and less compelling as you move away from animal model and move toward human beings who eat food so uh, that's good news for anyone who's had some kind of lingering concerns about seed oil so like i said that link will be in the show notes and i think that does it for this episode uh as always we really appreciate everyone for listening and we will be back with another episode in one week thank you for listening to the stronger by science podcast if you enjoyed the podcast be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules we hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. 
You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.